Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 51. And today will be the first in a two-part series with our guest, Rachel Willoughby-Green. Rachel is my wife and a licensed professional counselor. And we're going to talk about a bunch of different subjects, um, our relationship, and, you know, how the state of the world today is affecting counselors um, with the demand for mental health services being up across the board, not just with first responders. So hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, Episode number 51, the Washdown podcast with guest Rachel Willoughby Green. This. Why? What what's wrong with that's this? what your guys' life is like? I know that's what you're doing right you now. You saw your bullshit till it's something serious <laughs> yeah. and then you bullshit again. Yeah. yeah. Let's try and mess up our stuff. Yeah. No. People have come oh. to expect a certain level of douchebaggery from us. See? And you're fucking it up. Yeah. No, we're gonna do it my we'll way. We'll just leave the phone number, hey. the bathroom stall thing, leave that out. Yeah. We won't talk about your wife's number being on bathroom stalls, we'll just move on. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but he wasn't even recording, but thanks for giving him the opportunity to record that. <laughs> and with that note. <laughs> <I'm not>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fuck all y'all. Oh. It was, Suffer in silence, Jeremy. Yeah. It took yeah. forty se- it took forty seven seconds. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. Your wife is here. You should be in your best behavior. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> See how that you. worked out for me last she time. Got, she got you. She went out of her way to get prepared for this. Yeah. And here you are acting like an asshole. She's got notes and books. And she's going to make you shower. look good. Yeah. <laughs> I washed my hair. There you go. <laughs> I yeah. stuck it under the sink outside. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, did you shave your legs for this? I don't even know what to say. So, no. I guess that they was They were already later, shaved. Yeah. <laughs> Could we cut that? They were already shaved. I'm yeah. one of those people. Like, you, you I don't stop shaving even I mean, it's winter. I put yeah. on clean underwear to be here today. That's a big step for me. Yeah. So, I just want to make sure everybody else did, too. Yes. Yes. Every day. Shit, I should have changed my underwear, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there is a stigma here. Yeah. Gets dirty underwear. All right. Don't set any shit. So, why better? (laughs) The story goes that a boy of Sparta stole a fox and concealed it under his cloak. As he was sitting in the classroom, surrounded by other students and instructors, the fox began to eat his midsection. The boy sat without moving in plain view of lots of people, while the fox continued to hollow out his stomach until finally, without a cry of pain, he suddenly dropped dead. The legend of the boy of Sparta has been used to illustrate the value the Spartan culture placed on stoicism. In other words, suffering in silence. I think the legend of the boy of Sparta is actually about shame. In fact, in Gates of Fire, a depiction of the Spartans and the epic battle of Thermopylae, author Stephen Pressfield artfully alludes to the proverbial fox when speaking of the secret shame of the warrior. The knowledge within his own heart that he could have done better, done more, done it more swiftly, or with less self-preserving hesitation. This censure gnawed unspoken and unrelieved at the men's guts. So that's from the book Warrior by Shauna Springer. Um, Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and we can use that as a jumping off point. Sure. Well, I'm curious what... You guys think of it, reading it, hearing it. I think Jeremy practiced the word Thermopylae a lot and then screwed up how to say author. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think. Yep. (laughs) I know everybody caught it. Still going to point it out. (laughs) Thank you, Captain Obvious. He had it until I got in his head. He was fine, and then I got in his head about Thermopylae, and then it went downhill from there. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I got little bit of <laughs> ego there. Like, oh, oh, you see when he goes, I fucking nailed it. You did. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Crash and burn. Epic fail. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, that passage with the way that it's kind of written out and talking about the suffering and silence, that's so, I don't want to say it's encouraged, but it is. It's encouraged in our culture, in the fire service, in law enforcement, with veterans, um, you know, 
nurses, doctors, all of, you know, any of those first responder type service industry things. It took me back to a conversation we had a while back of a point I brought up when I was like, are we truly made to do this, right? Is any human, can we expect any human to successfully surrender themselves to this career for 30 years and still remain human? And I think about one thing with the Spartans, the effectiveness is what their legacy is, their effectiveness of battle, right? They were badasses. They were battle-hardened. They were the best of the best, um, which is even what made the story of Thermopylae so famous. To the point that I think in order to reach that, like, we can't have it both ways. We can't have the still have human traits and be truly effective in a career such as this. I'm speaking, like, in just kind of generalized terms, but that's what made them so successful is they took the humanity out of it and focused on the purpose. And that's where I think I struggle. A lot of us struggle is balancing the purpose and being effective, but also balancing the humanity with it. Yeah. I think, I think one thing I remember about <clears throat> the times back then, especially with the Spartans, is that was taught from day one. From when you started walking and talking, that's what you were taught. So you, knew, you didn't know anything different. And we're not taught that today. We're not trained from... They wanted to be a police officer, a firefighter, medic, a nurse, or the military. Those are all choices we made. <clears throat> and then nobody's really prepared for what you're going to see. And no, we're not built to see that every day. We're just not. And we, we've chosen these careers because of our morals. And a lot of it's the, the ethics we've been taught and how we were raised and wherever those influences come from. Whether it's, you know, your parents, religion, uh, your culture all that all plays a factor into it and that's why we've chosen a career but that doesn't change the injuries that are caused by what you've seen because it doesn't line up with your morals a human you shouldn't see a kid get beat to death or the after effects of it because it's not right in your in your eyes is again going back to the morals and that's the problem where with the spartans that was acceptable and that's because that's how they were taught they had a different set of morals and values. And what was the average lifespan back then? Yeah, it was short. And, I mean, from my understanding of that culture, pretty much if you were a warrior, you were a warrior. That's what you did. Mm-hmm. That's how you were raised and trained. And yeah. So, but death was much more common. Battle was, you know, wars were fought. Death was celebrated. They were, they were it was, battles were harder. It was considered glorious and respected. Well, it's, it's how you got to, you know, yeah. the uh, the fields. Yeah. So I think, um, like to what Moran was saying, like I think you can you can remain human, but you don't come out of it unchanged. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, and there was definitely changes, right? you know, in their culture with the people who did go fight multiple battles, who lived through many. But the the living through many battles back then was few and far between. There wasn't a whole lot of people that, you know, oh, this is my 200th battle. No, no. Because it didn't take much to be, you know, even a cut, a deep cut, or a semi-deep cut. You still risked a lot of death. You know, infections and all of that, stuff they didn't know about. What was that movie, A Million Ways to Die in the West? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. But, that, but that proves the point. I mean, yeah. even in... in not so long ago times, same thing. Didn't take much to be killed. And lifespans weren't that long. Yeah. And I know that kind of, it seemed like maybe we really dove off your original question, but that's kind of how I looked at it. Like, I looked at it as huh. the the effectiveness and the ability to maintain being effective versus showing humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because you don't come out of it unchanged. And like our our bodies, brains, nervous system aren't built for that, like, chronic long-term stress. That's why you see so many negative effects, right? Like, we're built, like, the system is built to, like, respond and then be able to come back from it, but not, like, under chronic long-term. And that's why we see so many negative effects for first responders, because you are under chronic long-term stress. So, so it's different. Our systems, maybe it will evolve. 
eventually, but well, hasn't yet. Something I'm yeah. curious about, and maybe you can answer this at least as far as like development and thought processes moving forward. It, it's been what maybe the last ten years that we finally started to see this mental health awareness in our military, starting with our military. Mm-hmm. Then it transitioned to our first responders, not only because we recognize the need of it. A lot of our military were going into first responder fields. I mm-hmm. think it's been longer than ten years. Is it? Yeah. So. 15 maybe at, it's at, so remember fdny started their peer support program after 9-11 oh god yeah so i guess so 20 you're at tw- yeah. over 20 years so um of course it wasn't immediate but they had they saw a need and they created mm-hmm. it and had help but it's but, i think the mental health of military has been there longer it just wasn't talked about because mm-hmm. there's so many resources with the military that mm-hmm. even people in the military don't know about so it wasn't I mean, you know, shell shock and all that. So you had the issues and they were treating it. They just didn't understand what they were treating. And I think it progressed over the years and it's morphed into what we see now. And we just had, didn't notice the change until the name was changed. Mike, Mike, question was brought for you, to us for you, Rachel. Yeah. World. Does that make sense? Yeah. My question for you, Rachel, is like if you're if you're treating somebody, right, and you've mm-hmm. got a 20-year first responder and you've got a military guy that's done a deployment. Mm-hmm. Both are equally struggling. Mm-hmm. Are the is the curriculum even close to being the same of a one-time one-year thing and an accumulative 20-year thing? Um, Not that anyone's worse or better, just yeah. they're different. Right. So, I will say the like the one thing, like one time or like one incident um is a unicorn, right? Like that that is great. Like if somebody walks through and they have just like one critical incident or you know one specific combat experience or something, um, and to work on that, that's different. That's incredibly rare, right? Because you're immersed in it. So even if like you know you're deployed for a year, but you have you're in one firefight, it doesn't matter. Like there's stuff that entire year, right? Um, so in the sense that, so there's a, I would say the the difference. Because a lot of the stuff is the same. Like if you break it down to like what's happening to the nervous system and the response to it. But what's different for the first responder is because they're going back in. Right. Like I can have a first responder sitting in my office and we work on a specific trauma or reprocessing or desensitizing to something. But then they go back on duty or back on shift and they're exposed to something else. Right. And so that's the difference between like if I'm working with a veteran who is thou in the civilian world um, versus a first responder who's going out chronically being exposed. I don't know if that answers your question. So right. it's gonna it's gonna affect the work, right? If you're yeah. constantly being re-exposed, um, it affects the work. I don't even. <laughs> yeah. it, it almost seems obviously you're effective at your job, so it, I'm sure it wouldn't be. But it almost seems like what's the point? Like, oh, let's let's make all this headway and go back to work, mm-hmm. and let's make all this headway and go back to work, like. Well, I think the, and I want. I don't want to speak for you, Go ahead. but the ultimate goal is to get the person to the point where they have those coping skills to where whenever they do run those bad calls and all of that, it's not going to hit them the same way. They're able to process it themselves. You know. Yeah. So because you're you are making headway. So regardless, right? Like if we're working on just whether we get to actually like reprocessing something specific, but that's typically the goal, right? So you're still always making headway. It's not like it negates any of the work that you did, right? So the same with somebody who, um, if somebody who relapses, it doesn't mean that you, everything that you did before just completely gets erased. Like you have all the experiences, you have all the skills, you have the stuff that you have worked on and it takes you forward. So it builds a little bit more resilience or more resilience for the next thing. So it's like having the tools in the toolbox, but learning how to use them properly. Yeah. And at the right times. Yeah. I know it's not, I know I dumped, right, I dumped that, it down, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you got to do for first That's responders. how I took it. What the actual F? Sorry. What's your next note? You came prepared. You just threw me under the bus. Did I you see sure. what our notes were? Yeah. <laughs> I saw you write them. We wrote them at the table. Well, I sat with we you We talked you about a lot them. of different things. We did. Don't act like you know how to read and write, Jeremy. <sighs> well, you know, I got my edumacation. <laughs> In Louisiana. <laughs> yes, I did. As the Yankees say it. Mm-hmm. So let me give an example of this because, um, so 
the stellate ganglion block is something that's becoming more um the veteran community was a little bit more aware of it and now i think the first responder community is becoming more aware of it so um quick um, explanation of it is essentially it's um, an injection of lidocaine into a cluster of nerves that kind of calms the nervous system down. So what it, it experiences like is kind of almost like a reset of the nervous system. And so when someone gets that and it's helpful and effective, it's kind of like it quiets down that whole fight or flight response. And so what happened, but eventually it wears off, right? Like it doesn't last forever. And so for like a lot of my guys who have had it, um, they'll, you know, maybe go six months or a year or two years and feel really great. And then they're so afraid that if the symptoms start to come back, that they're just going to go back to ground zero on it. But really what happens is like, if you think about all of the work that you did because you were able to process stuff appropriately, work it out, your brain could do what it needs to do and what it can do and better night's sleep and all of that to be able to be healthier. So it doesn't erase all of that good stuff. Um, it takes you that much further, so you're more prepared for when it does start to wear off or whatever. And then you can get it again, but if that makes sense. Yeah. I knew nothing about that. It's super cool. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's research and data out there, and some people have different feelings about it, but um, it's pretty incredible of how effective it can be and, and immediately how it quiets down. I think... Originally, it was, like, used to treat um, neck pain because of where it is. Um, but So, like, a gabapentin almost? Then, yeah. <laughs> then found all the... Then they realized it calms down PTSD symptoms, too. So... Okay. That's actually really fast. I seriously knew nothing about that. And I hate mm -hmm. to just, like, breeze on by it like we all knew. <laughs> it's just yeah. fucking cool. Yeah. No, they've been That's making... There's been a lot of strides I've done quite a bit of research on stuff like that you know the the stelaganglion block um the ibogaine uh mdma um, mushrooms the psilocybin stuff they're starting to actually research that and what it can do for tbi and depression um i spell gangly i'm not oh. going to spell that for you google will spell the it for gang -lion. you I don't know. That's how I make it sense of J A N G L I O N, yeah. right? I didn't know I was on the spelling bee. I'm not a speller. Yeah. So the S G B. If you, because everybody likes acronyms, right? Some people like yeah. acronyms. So they are doing it locally, and then there's kind of the guru guy in Chicago, but um, it can be done locally. And and I will say, like, um, I know some people. You know, because like through community care, the VA will, once they've paid for it themselves and then shown that it was effective, um, several veterans have been able to have it then paid for from then on. Um, How do you sign up for the shrooms? <laughs> that I don't know. I will let you know if there's studies. So as they continue to do studies, right, they look for participants. So that is the thing. You have to be careful, right? Mm -hmm. And things like ketamine and all that stuff that's out there and there's... Re they're getting research behind it, but then some of it is not regulated yet either or not FDA approved. So you got to be careful because everybody just jumps on the bandwagon, right? I think but I stay away from the ketamine. I don't want to go down the K-hole. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> well, For I, depression, there's pretty good Yeah, so, and, and for most of research. these, you're, they're not using recreational amounts. It's small. Like with the psilocybin, it's microdosing. So, like, you get none of the psychedelic effects oh, I'm out. of the psilocybin. I mean, you're talking about, like, <laughs> <I wanna trip. laughs> really, really, really small amounts, but you take it every day. And I read an article the other day that says they're in one research study or whatever, they're showing that it can actually regrow white brain matter. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> more research and everything needs to be done to confirm those and all of that, but... I mean that's pretty interesting. Are. There's a lot, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. There's because it's basically regrowing part of your body. So I think with the with the ketamine too. I want to be able to regrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be more daredevil. Like ah, I lost my leg, so what? It'll grow. <laughs> 
Well, and so I think with the ketamine too is it's just also where you're going or who's being. So I always tell people like if someone's going to choose that, obviously like I don't make a medical recommendation because I'm not a medical doctor. If someone's going to do that to go to a place that it's being done by a psychiatrist so that everything's being observed because they run testing and blood work and EKG and all of that stuff and then are look because it interferes with some medications too right so it's one of those things that's like getting popular so you see it out there and random places are doing infusions but i would always be really careful like i always tell people like your psychiatrist needs to know if you're on meds and how that stuff can interact but yeah well and that's the but they are thing doing with the ibogaine and ayahuasca and all that stuff you can't be on any meds to do that stuff so so you'll see what happens <laughs> Yeah, no. And then you end up in my office. Yeah, let's just shoot, more your, up. shoot your shot. See what yeah. happens. <laughs> it, it does not sound fun. I've listened to a lot of podcasts with guys who have done that stuff, and I mean, they say it works. It's great, and like, it's awesome. But like, not the experience itself. The experience itself is terrible, especially but, with Ibogaine. But the after effects, but the after effects the is it yeah. was so worth it. So I mean. You know, you're talking about guys that are on the on the doorstep of suicide. Yeah. And this is the last thing that they're going to try. And that's the relief they get from it. So, I mean, pretty much it doesn't matter how crappy the experience is. If it works, it works. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Next topic. <laughs> on me? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You have the notepad. I'm fired. Yeah. Can I put it in front of you? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, speaking of suicide, so I'm just waiting for Jeremy to yell you for banging the table. Am I? Yeah, it transfers oh, you to the mic. You didn't see it. You, you hit it like with your finger while you were talking. Did and I? He, and he's... <laughs> but if it was me or Moran, oh, my God. But no, you're special. <laughs> She's my wife. I, I don't care. I actually like her. I don't care. She should be held, held to a higher standard. How are you going to edit it out when Nelson and I just get up and walk out of this? Yeah. You thought about that? You wouldn't edit it out. No. Maybe you could stop, it'd right? Be, we would just TV. debrief that. Yeah. I'd probably... <laughs> I'll well, goes, you, I'll, you, I don't have to edit out because you're not on the camera. Oh, bet. Him. <laughs> I won't walk right in front of this camera no, and show my like ass. He would leave quietly. <laughs> you know what? Really? I want to see it. <laughs> Do it. I'm calling the bluff. <laughs> <laughs> Nelson, I would just take the blanket and throw it over there, and it'd contribute as much. That's transfer. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. So, let me be congruent and transparent here. We did talk about a lot of different topics. She wrote those words down right there. I see them. No. Congruent is right there. Sorry. I forgot. Let me explain. So that my insides are matching my outsides. I'm being congruent. Um, my notes are messy. What we did talk about is, like, one, because suicide is a major issue anyway and then it has been very relevant um there is a mental health crisis so outside in both in the civilian world and the first responder world right um so we talked about the importance of that topic and having more conversations around it um and then your own personal story about suicide and and how you got to a place like that so Awkward. Which I use, like, and which I really appreciate you being open about it and comfortable talking about it. And it's not like a few months after we were, right? Or a couple weeks after, or a couple months after. Like, we're at, what, two and a half years since yeah, everything I mean, happened. And so, long? Yeah. 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 It'd be yep. two and a half years. Yep. It's been a minute. So. I like 30 seconds. <laughs> 45 at least. <laughs> Seems like so, yesterday. But yeah, but I mean, it is a, it, it's an important topic and it's relevant, especially in our area right now where we have had multiple. One, yeah, multiple. I was going to say a rash, but multiple sounds better. A plethora. A plethora. Do you even know what a plethora is, Hefe? Yeah, it's like a gaggle. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> hey, I got something for you. Look, there's two of them. <laughs> he has a plethora to give you. Uh, yeah. Now it's going to be like Super Troopers. How can you fit that in? Uh, I don't. Where was I going? Yes, it's more relevant 
I had a direction. So, yes, and yes. that, and we were talking about, so the reason it's connected, too, is because of, like, loss of significant relationship or important relationship being such a huge suicide risk factor mm-hmm. that that's where it showed up for you, too, yeah. right? Like, in the loss of, like, here is an incredibly important person in my life that now I'm potentially able about ready to lose. And mm-hmm. that's something that we so, hear all the time. As I'm not trying to belittle what, what happened, because yeah. that was huge. But the fact that you just lost your dad, too, and this was it. Oh, it was a, right. This yeah. was the last one. Right. It's yeah. the most important in, in your life, you know, at that time. And probably even now. That was, I mean, if that's gone, you got nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you're like, screw it. I got nothing to lose. Yep. She's gone either way, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and we talked about it, and she was asking me, like, what were you thinking and, and all of that. And honestly, I wasn't. I didn't think about one thing. Because whenever I was at that point, you know how you can like, you can sit and even if you're kind of just like staring off into space or whatever, you're still aware of things and Mm -hmm. you're still, your mind's still working, still thinking. Mine wasn't. It was just blackness. Like I was aware of, you know, being in the house, the dogs around her and all of that stuff, but I wasn't there. Like, there was no future, no anything past that moment. And I can say, like, because it's a weird experience for me um, seeing it, like, play out, right? Because in that moment, like, I'm I'm having a conversation with him, um, and, like, you're, you're there and you're communicating. And the way that I describe it to people is it's like, it's like he decompensated right in front of my face like it's like he was there and then all of a sudden he wasn't there and it was like a complete shift and it's it's the weirdest thing like if you could describe it as as like somehow an energy shift that's what it was like because it was like a veil came over him he was like just completely no longer present right and then I go to walk out the door and I hear a gun rack and I run back and find you with a gun to your head. Yep. So, but it, um, yeah, that was the experience of it. Right. I don't, I wasn't in your head, but the experience of it was like, you were no longer there anymore. Yeah. Would you say that was a looking back on it now? How long would you say that Jeremy wasn't there anymore for a while? Was it a five-minute thing, or was it a five-month thing, a day thing, a week thing? Well, so in in that moment, it was it was moments, and you know how time slows down, right? Like you guys have all been in that experience of like a high-risk moment, and it's that phenomenon of like time slows, and so it's really hard to judge time. So that was just like moments that felt like a long time, right? But it was probably seconds or minutes. Um, but I don't think he was ever really there, but I didn't know it cause that's who I met. Like I met the person that was somewhat disconnected or like dissociative in some way. Right. Mm. Cause there were parts of him that he hid. Um, so, and I knew that intuitively, right. Cause that created discomfort in me. So it's that like, I always know something's wrong. And this is why, like, I have a lot of spouses come to me who are married to first responders or go through what we went through or go through infidelity because they're like, what do you do? How do you get this? How are you so married? Um, but so it's like I I knew it, but I never had proof or evidence of it. Right. It's just that like gut thing that people tend to ignore um, when we don't have like evidence for it. Mm-hmm. So I would say like there was a part of him that was always like I didn't see him as him. So like that moment was like you were totally somewhere else. Like that would be, you know, like totally dissociative. And then I think maybe when you were getting into the ambulance to be transferred to acute, there was a moment of, and this was part of my processing and EMDR where there was a moment of like real humanity. Um, But then it probably wasn't until he was completely honest. Like he had to get totally congruent, right? Like totally honest with the risk of losing me completely and, you know, our marriage being over. Um, it wasn't until then that then I got the real person. 
like the full authentic this is me not hidden good and bad right so I think it would be at that moment that I got to see you as you yeah I was probably in the hospital at some point so the Jeremy we know today or after it would have been it would have been up and down there's moments of it but it wouldn't have been you know I mean it's an in and out right because it's a process for anybody I'd have much rather seen the pre-Jeremy because this Jeremy's just kind of god this Jeremy's so much better Uh, you don't have to do a podcast with him I kind of like drunk Jeremy (laughs) (laughs) we had a lot of fun at the bar back in the day no (laughs) Uh, that's my saddest thing is I'll never get to see drunk Jeremy it's not fun yeah you didn't Need to see drunk Jeremy. No, but like fun oh, I'm drunk sure, Jeremy. Like yeah, fun drunk. Like not, I'm sure you guys experience. Okay, it's not fun being married bag. to, right? Being a friend of that is different than being married to it. Fair. Yeah. yeah. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But just like one night, like a like an Oprah special, like <laughs> Jeremy live at the brass rail. You get a beer. You get a beer. You get a beer. <laughs> Rachel, here's so a glass of wine. So we talking about relapse right now. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, we're gonna quickly shift so, and go back to okay. So, but what I want to say, like when you talked about, because it wasn't just that moment, right? And this is the thing that I always talk to people about suicide risk. It's sorry, I know you're behind. I can Do hear it. it. Just hit it. Yeah, bam. Just get it, just <laughs> like get it <Jackson>. done. <laughs> like our little nephew, <laughs> like bites them and pulls them off. Yeah, and then <laughs> not these, not these. Yeah, no, His he's karaoke not a, stuff at home. He doesn't come in this room yeah. unless, you know, he, somebody's He'd holding him. Yeah. Oh, he did when too. he sat there because yeah, he likes to hear himself. Yeah. But that was with the old stuff, I think, wasn't it? Or did I have the new stuff by then? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember. Anyway. How it builds up, right? So it's not like just one factor. And that's what we look at with suicide. Like there's, you, if you're thinking about starting a baseline, it's like there's this and then there's you as you continue to add like risk factor, risk factor, risk factor, right. Then your risk of suicide becomes higher. And so that didn't start right then. Right. It didn't start when everything came out and I found out about infidelity and all that. That's not when it started. Like if you go all the way back, both. And unfortunately so many people are dealing with childhood stuff too. Right. Like huge percentage of military first responders don't go into those um, fields without also having some kind of childhood negative childhood experiences or childhood trauma or neglect. And so, you know, it's like you take that piece and then you add things on top of it of you add experiences on the job, you add lack of sleep, you add negative coping skills, you add substance use and all of that stuff that just keeps adding up and adding up. Sorry. I know. Because I hit it. Yeah, that's why I got to get your Get your booger grabbers off this So stop Who doesn't make a joke about Stop hitting the table and stop you, hitting the mic. Do you need the blanket? The blanket helps. This, I don't feel James just wants to be like on camera. Phil. <laughs> do you want to switch? No, not at all. Switch spots. Change like places. <laughs> put your hands in your pockets. Tell the blanket don't helps. put your hands like in your pockets. <laughs> I feel like this happened the last time I was on. You're like Doing weird things with your hands. I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> Just like put them at your side. Put them up. I'm so confused. <laughs> so what was the... Did you write down the analogy that I used the other night whenever we were talking about this? About Well, no. something. We'll just skip that because I don't remember what it was. Um, I might spark my memory if yeah. you explain what it was. Well, it was going along with what you said about the whole compounding like it's a you know it's this happens then this happens then this happens so i mean you pretty much explained it so right which you could look at it different ways right like when you guys talk about like you'll hear like my trauma bucket is full um or it's just that cumulative and chronic stress and all of that stuff that just continues to build up um and then there's like the classic right like we typically look at um which isolation is a huge thing for you guys too like and you can be surrounded by people and still be isolated right because if, if nobody really knows you or sees you um and that can be the loneliest feeling right like you could be like actually alone but if you're with people and you feel alone that's an even worse 
feeling. Um, you know, but all those like kind of classic like substance use and um, previous suicide attempts or other family members or other people in your close life who have died by suicide, loss of relationship, um, you know, and big losses like finances and things like that. I mean, there's all kinds of risk factors. And then I think sometimes there's like specific risk factors for different populations too. What's happening? I don't know who's breathing into the microphone. The guy Sitting snoring there. in the background. I know. Is he sleeping? I'm not. Sli- I'm not sleeping. Am I, am I comfortable? Yes. Yes, I'm very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> How about he snores in and out too? Probably. I feel like you're in a bunk room right now. Uh, a <laughs> little bit. That's yeah. Somebody just needs to start farting. I I just got a green light. <laughs> no. This is a closed Sorry. room with no ventilation. <laughs> wow. Whose eyes are going to water first? All right, what's the next What's the next note? <laughs> Do you want to look Russia. at this? Oh my god. This is a mess. Russell, 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 Russell. Well, what's relevant for you guys right now when you in talking about suicide or suicide awareness? Right, because your guys' experience of it is different than mine, either both as either as a spouse or as a clinician. Right, and you you have down written down here on your notes the desensitization. Yeah, and we talked like that about constant that, exposure and the, stuff too. The, right, the constant exposure to suicide now, as opposed to what it was like culturally, even say twenty years ago. You can even say how, five years ago. Yeah, of how now it seems to be more acceptable i mean i I know that's kind of like a bad way to put it but well there's less of a taboo right which i think does like and people can disagree with me um because it's by no means like do we want to or do i want to shame anything in the realm of mental health um but suicide was one of the things that i think when there when we didn't talk about as much and there wasn't a or there was a taboo against it how am I supposed to not to move use, and talk? I was trying to use my laser eyes. They weren't, they're not working. They must be off. I didn't charge them last night. You can move and talk without, like, smacking the table and stuff. This is how I just be, Just be better. No. This is like being with a bunch of cops right now. So normally, like, Fuck I don't get this stuff you. from... It is. Counseling, Sorry. Everybody knows this. Anybody who counts. I'm out. No, no, just call me a cop. I'm out. Sit your ass down. How dare you? We're gonna get you're, you're gonna bring counsels? real Chris out. You're oh, gonna bring real Chris out. Okay. That's gonna be awesome. I told him he needs to come out for the podcast. Hey Chris, that's a nice blue hoodie. No, it's like everything that you it is. do. It's one of my buddies. It's his high school team in Illinois. Analyst. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. I'm going to try to be very still. Now that our tantrum's over. <laughs> I can't oh read your handwriting. Nobody can. I, I really the wanted taboo. her, okay. really wanted her yeah. to so, get that to Looking at it, it doesn't look like some... a doctor wrote it, though. I'll get, I'll get that. <laughs> That's what I would just argue. I'm like... <laughs> I really just wanted there to be doodles on it when she handed it to you. That's <laughs> basically what it looks like. Scribble, scribble, just doodle, pictures. doodle. <laughs> this was from our conversation the other day. You got to start using your computer. Just type it out. Two, apparently. Because this was... Copy I go from move it. And then I go from session, 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 session to then show up. So then I didn't set up my computer to type things up. But I think part of it... So, and I think it's like it's normal and okay to say this because part of this topic, right, is also very personal. And so I think a piece of like us talking about it the other day, because people have asked me that, like, can you talk about it? Or then like... Do you need to check in after, you know, like, do brave? <laughs> like, are you okay? Um, because it can be activating, right? Like, triggering, like, whatever word you want to use. So I think a piece of us talking about it, too, was not just to, like, talk about what are some of the important pieces, right? Like, what actually was going on with you that's helpful for other people to know um, or how we have recovered or repaired. Like, how the hell are we still married right now? Um, but it's also to be able to talk about it um, and then not get 
all activated by it. Right? Because right. there was a time that I couldn't yeah. or I didn't want to or I would set in a session, right? Like these are topics. So suicide and infidelity comes up a lot. And in the populations that I work with, it comes up a lot. Um, and so, you know, being able to, like, there was a point where that stuff would be triggering for me. And I really had to compartmentalize in sessions. So I think it's important to be able to, and that's part of anybody's work, right? Is being able to, to tell the story as a beginning, a middle, and an end. Take from it what was helpful and adaptive and move forward with it so that you don't get stuck in the really crappy parts of it. Yeah, because the getting stuck part is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's the not, you know, like you like you like to say, own your shit. Mm-hmm. So you got to own it, deal with it, and then move on and let it go. You mm-hmm. don't need to carry it with you, you know, everywhere you go all yeah. the time. Yeah. Because that's what it ends up being is just a bag of rocks on your back. So being that you, you do what you do, and then with what happened between you guys, mm-hmm. did you have to go talk to somebody as well to get it out and help deal with it? Because it's different to know what to do. How oh, to help yeah. somebody get there, then do it yourself. Mm-hmm. When you've never yeah. had to do it before. Yeah. Oh, totally. Because from the get-go, and I talk to people about this now even, when I, because um, if I, you know, somebody comes into my office or something and, you know, like, especially, like, if you guys run a call on somebody you know, right, like, that is different than running a call on somebody that you don't know. Um, and so sometimes when stuff really hits home or, like, when we're seeing these suicides within a department, Um, versus running the suicide of a civilian, right? Like, that's different. That hits different. Yeah. Um, And so I remember, like, how grateful I am for you. And I always tell people that now because I do so much stuff on talking about peer support or working with peer support groups. Or it's like, it's essentially what I did, right, was reach out Mm -hmm. to peer support. And, like, and I knew I could call you. And you showed up, and I knew that you could handle it. Right. And I don't remember ever cognitively thinking of any of that stuff. I just that's what's great about knowing who you can call, um, because in the moment, like I, I had just, <laughs> it's a wow, that's like impressive. A, that, that's not like a gong. I, I thought something just like kicked off. <laughs> yeah, I did too. I was like, did you move your HVAC stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so fire. Oh, my God. Um, she was on a she's, roll too. She's, yeah, she's gonna I, get one of the old mics next time. <laughs> I know. I respond. <laughs> my point was. I cannot wait to the spouse episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna I know. Be a shit show. Who are you kidding? I can't wait to moderate it back here. Because <laughs> oh, Jane, be Jane's a hand talker. I fight to keep my hands <laughs> still. Mm-hmm. I need pocket. You, I, that's what I should have done. Just, you just fail. I mean, I I'm gonna get some handcuffs. <laughs> See, that's why I sit where I sit, so I can still talk with my hands, but I'm not smacking it. Nobody cares. Yeah. We're not talking about I you. We're talking about her. Okay. And me. This and Jane. feels very like I can't do that. Wow. Now, now, <laughs> now you got a job interview. I know. Okay. So my point was is I respond to crisis all the time, right? I know how to respond to a crisis. Um, when it's my husband, it's a whole different ballgame. I'm yeah, like, uh, I got to wrap my head around this. I need a moment. I need a moment to freak the F out so that I can get my head back and then figure out the next steps, right? And to reach out for help. Like, thank God I have a huge support system so I could reach out for help. Um, <laughs> I forgot where I was going with all that. You went to therapy. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yes. And it was, it was for me. It was a good way. I know. Way. I had a good a way. I had some scenery. <laughs> yeah. It was enjoyable. Yeah. But that was a long way. It was way. like, <laughs> yes. I took and that's the saying country something. road. That's saying something when he tells you it's the right. long way around. Yeah. <laughs> I took the country road, not the highway. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it wasn't immediate for me. And so this is what I, this was a helpful example for me to understand kind of that delayed response or like delayed um, trauma response. Because, so I had people and obviously like I have a lot of friends who are clinicians and stuff. And then I had really good friends who stepped out and said, hey, I've been through this too. Like, this is what it was like for me and my husband. And this is what it was like for to go through and to find out about infidelity and stuff. And um, so I had people who I could really talk to who could normalize it. Um, it wasn't until, and I was one of those people that like powered through, right? He's in treatment. Um, I still have to take care of stuff. So I'm helping my sister and her new baby. I'm taking care of my dad. I'm going to work. I'm seeing clients, taking care of the house, the dogs, whatever. 
which is oftentimes what happens to the spouse, right? Like you keep working on stuff while your partner is away getting help. We've had many conversations about that where he's out getting better and getting healthy and coming back and, hey, I'm fixed. Yeah. And you're still broke as fuck. Right, right. I mean, there's no... I'm not. I'm not even gonna try and put that nicely. I mean, you're. That's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Your world's been shattered, and you haven't had time to pick up, but maybe two pieces. Mm-hmm. And you still got to deal with it. Yeah. And now he comes home, and he's like, "Oh, let's start fixing us." And you can't fix us until you fix you. Yeah. And so it was hard. So it was probably six months for me before I had. I really realized. I think it. I think I had already started therapy. Um, you know, because I knew I needed to. And then I, you know, went to a friend of mine who does neurofeedback and we kind of did my baseline. It was obvious that like my nervous system was dysregulated. Um, and I mean, I knew like with my sleep and all of that kind of stuff, like things were off and I was starting to get really burned out of work and getting like super triggered and stuff at work in sessions. Um, and so then, but my first like real experience of being flooded and kind of re-experience everything I experienced that day was probably six months later. And then that's when I was like, all right, I'm in trouble and I need some extra help and started doing EMDR around it. Um, but, but that's typically how it is. And I think for, and especially for like those spouses or partners, like I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, you've been sober for two years and, um, you have been doing the work and you did the work, which is huge. But there are a lot of spouses who are married to somebody who's where it's a really long road and it's recurrent and there's relapse after relapse. And I'll be honest, um, I, well, I do want to put money down that it's easier for him to stay on that path because of what you do. And not everybody has that luxury hmm. of having that that clinician right there at, well, all, at all times. It, I. I'm not going to disagree with you. I, I agree with that, but I think it's, for me, it's easier because of how she treated me. You know, she didn't dump a whole bunch of shame on me. She didn't, whenever I came home, you know, she set very clear boundaries and we were going to talk about that anyway, but the, the counselor where I was at, um, inpatient Valor, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a, like a what would you call that a meeting dual counseling yeah ses- kind of just a family just a family session or, session family or meeting, whatever yeah. and you know that was one of the things <clears> of <throat> hey you can set these boundaries you know and you get to decide what they are and then hey you dumbass you have to follow those boundaries so being able to know what the expectations were and you know and it, dude it wasn't easy i'm not saying I mean, that's not what that, i'm saying that part, all. well, yeah, I, let me finish. It wasn't easy, but the way that she handled everything for the most part and the way that we interacted and that she treated me, that, I think, is what made it a lot easier for me. Because she could have made too. it a, a way different, way more difficult. And I, and I think her having the understanding of what you were going through because of the education part and her experience it all plays it's, it's all playing in so you you have sure. more going for you than most people because of her and what she does yeah i mean like you know when, when i go home my wife's not a clinician <laughs> <laughs> is, what, is what i'm saying i mean right. so it's, it's different and she's going to react different because she doesn't have that understanding until it's made perfectly clear she's got to go through it and fight those demons and it's just i think with her and her knowledge i'm saying it's it's easier yeah. to stay on that road and not relapse because one you're putting the work in because you don't want to disappoint her but she can also catch something early if you start to head down that path like we said every one step down is 10 steps back to getting right right so she's catching you at half a step when you're starting to show that sign where most of us aren't going to catch that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But well, you got to put the work in, though. You right. Have. Yeah. And he's got to be like you have to tune into being aware of it, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. all along the way. And I talked about this um, with a, a peer support group and stuff the other day that you know there's this huge span of time from you when stuff started for you to then the point of not wanting to be alive anymore. And it's like all along the way, 
there's signs, right? And there's stuff that mm-hmm. like I knew was wrong and I could, and it's like, I had the suicide talk after when your dad died and you were drinking more, right? I was like, this concerns me. They're, these are risks. Like, are you really okay? You're spending more time at the fire station than you're spending at home. Like I had all those talks, all of those things that I tell people to talk, right? But you were in such denial. You're like, I'm fine. Suicide's never an option for me. It's never going to be an option for me, right? Mm-hmm. Like you were that guy until all of a sudden it was an option, yeah. which is a, a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, so I agree. I think there is that part. But then there is a part of like of humanity that everybody is like capable of. And I one of the things that because a huge part of it is is grace. And and I know that there's probably some of that is supernatural. Um there's got to be parts that that's also part of me and my personality to give a lot of grace. And that's just been me since I was a little kid. Um, but I and to see humanity in in pain and in, in suffering. Right. Which is why I'm in the field that I'm in is because that's kind of who I was before I got into the field. But a big piece for me was not. Like, so Brene, and I can't remember exactly what she said, but somewhere along the lines, whether I was listening to Brene Brown or I read a book, whatever, but she talked about um, a woman not deriving her power from a man in shame. And I remember sitting at the hospital, um, like in the waiting room when you were in acute and how big of a piece that was for me, because it was like, and that was just kind of like echoing in my head because I could make things worse, right? Like I could really put him down and I could put him in more shame and I could say how, and I, I'm not perfect. I had my moments of burning stuff and destroying things, probably sending horrible texts. And, you know, I had a lot of bonfires, um, in that like really acute face. But like, I remember sitting there going, that's not how I want to drive my power, right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to see you in shame. I don't want to see you in that much pain or not want to be alive, for something like this. And so that was the piece that I had to anchor to of to like to look across from him across from a table and see a person in that much pain and that much vulnerability that the rest of it, it mattered, but it didn't matter in the face of that. And that was the piece that, that I had to anchor to. And then I think obviously from, from then on, and of course at that point did I have an awareness of, of trauma and all of that stuff, but it also doesn't, it's different when it's your own, right? Because that was still like, oh, because I remember there was a time when you were still kind of early on in treatment, kind of in denial, and you're like, you're a therapist, how do you not understand this? And I was like, oh, no, I am not a therapist right now, I'm a wife. If looks could kill, I would definitely be dead. But but understanding his side, I can see why he would think that. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I said he, that, and he's. I think it's you know one trying to hurt you, but two, re- without saying he's reaching out for help. Mm. Yeah. You know he's going to turn yeah. to you because he's he trusts you the most. Well, it's not his I, friends because we're morons. But I, I well, he think wasn't I, reaching out to anybody until yeah. you were forced to. And I think that I probably said that from a place of ignorance. Because at the time that I said that, I still didn't really know anything. So see, I didn't notice a change until you went to Valor. Because going to the acute, it was just straight anger. Hmm. There was shame in there. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but it was mostly anger because now he's in the situation he's in, and the only way to get out is to go forward and confront things and do things that you didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a. That's a lot of, and this is what happens, right? Because why, why somebody at that point will get to suicide too? Because it's not about a physical death, right? It's about getting away from that. That it doesn't feel like there's any other option, but to not be alive anymore. It's that release or relief or escape from that pain, and so that is huge. And this is what I tell guys: I'm like, you've got to get to a point to be able to build that kind of trust again with your spouse, like you've got to get that real, like you've got to completely own your shit. And granted, I made it was safer for him because I did the work to make it safer for him to be that honest. Right. And there were times that you still, after treatment, lied about something you didn't need to lie about. Right. <laughs> and I felt like it just kind of like opened stuff back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, 
to where you were continuously able to to be honest, to be congruent, um, to own what was going on. And then I had to continue to do the work to be able to create that space, mm-hmm. right? Like to give that grace. Um, but I think that piece, like actually going and genuinely being committed to getting help, um, coming out with realistic expectations because, and this is across the board, like so many people will go into treatment and then come out going, well, I just, I just did all this treatment. So now I'm home and everything should go back to normal or you should just forgive me or, you know, we should sleep in the same bed again and, you know, whatever. And it it doesn't work like that. And so knowing that, like, you've got to deal with your own stuff about it and then respect the boundaries of the spouse, especially when infidelity has come into play. That was you. What was that? It was a burp. Yeah. It sounded like a rattle. It's the carbonation from the Sodi Pop. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. When Jane comes on, I'm going to say Sodi Pop a lot. (laughs) Sodi Pop? Sweet. That was a really weird noise. <laughs> he was trying it to. Like he was trying snort. to stifle it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I know big words too. <laughs> I thought it was far enough away from the mic; it wouldn't pick it oh, up. But, uh, my mom <laughs> used to do that, and we didn't know what stifle because my mom would be like stifle, and so then somebody, you know, one of us siblings figured out what it meant, and so then we we're like, "You want us to suffocate ourselves?" <laughs> Drama. Yeah. Oh, I thought Maria was snoring. I thought Maria was snoring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um. Yeah, yeah, that boundary phase. But like you were talking about that with the clinician, and who's who's a fantastic clinician. It's in the area, and um, he and I make a lot of referrals to each other back and forth. And um, that was a huge piece, and that's a piece that he still gives to you know two clients and two spouses. And it's like reiterating that of you've got to respect that boundary, right? Because that's a huge piece in some because it really does exist. For women and to be, I mean, so many people can be people pleasers anyway, right? But for for women to to please and then this pressure of like what it means to be a wife. And then when you're talking about infidelity anyway, like it stirs up all your vulnerabilities of like not being enough. And so then the la- the scare- one of the scariest things to do then is to set that physical boundary because your fear is that they're going to go out and seek it elsewhere, right? And But then that just feeds that cycle. And so... For for a partner, so, and I obviously, I'm talking male and female, it can go across either way, right? Whatever gender. Um, but you respected that, and that was huge because I needed to like rebuild, like, I needed to know that you would respect me in that way, that you would guard my heart in that way. So you're, you're kind of, you're basically starting from the first date again. Yeah, like you're courting again. Yep. Starting from scratch with baggage. Yeah, but, but you bag- really do have to like date and court. Yeah, right. You're not trying to hide it. Right. Yeah. Sheer shot is better than yeah. early on when you're in the bullshit honeymoon phase where you're hiding everything. I right? like the honeymoon phase. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know what I would call our early phase. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Fun to watch. <laughs> it was all like it was jacked and I told my therapist that and I remember her writing that down because I said it was all bad enough it was it was shattering enough to also break the bad and yeah. so I will be forever grateful if we hadn't stayed together I would still be forever grateful because somehow it broke away all of the crappy stuff and the the triggers and the patterns that I also had in relationship and then it was like really validating for me because I was like Damn it, I knew something was wrong. Like, I knew it. Like, my gut was right the whole time. Your, your relationship's definitely been better after oh, yeah. than it ever was before. Yeah. Because, I mean, you guys remember we were yeah, all it was to the crazy. gym, and one day it'd be all lovey-dovey, next day you're crying you know, daggers. <laughs> I go from across the gym, like, man, it's been like 12 hours. What the hell happened? It's horrible. <laughs> it's not a healthy relationship. You saw a movie last night. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. You it know, wasn't or, healthy. Or, like even lit to the phone call would be, you know, in the bay, lovey dovey, and then arguing. Something. Like what the fuck is going on out there? It's kind of like you yeah. and your cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first time says down nice and easy. Yeah. So Next bam. Time, bam. Yeah. Then we got to This is a topic. You tell him activated. No. <laughs> but other, I'm all, you know, and I'm not trying to. to no, it talk was shit awful. On your, on your early relationship. It was insane. But it was so back and forth. Like it was. Yeah, it was. I, mean, I there were times I told Jeremy, you know, because she's gonna bitch. So I bitch about Jane. Yeah, she bitches about me. It's like I don't give a fuck, dude. 
I just don't care anymore. Yeah. Break up, don't break up, whatever, man. Do yeah. you? I'm gonna yeah. go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> like it's four in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. that's how done. That's how done I am. I'm going to bed. <laughs> that's a true friend right there. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was. It was honest. And every, I mean, everybody will say that friends, family. Yeah. Like family knew it, and family knew. I mean, everybody knew something was wrong. Right. I mean. But I, so we never really had a chance until everything came out. But then that's also then the beauty of like post-traumatic growth where the best of somebody can mm-hmm. yeah. has the opportunity it's a, it's to come out. It's a example of actually growing yeah. after it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the part that a lot of people just kind of skip over or don't highlight, you know, in their own stories is or people make this mistake of thinking okay, well, I have PTSD or PTS or depression or whatever. And they think it's like a life sentence. Stop touching shit. I thought it might help. (laughs) How is moving the microphone a millimeter going to stop you from slapping the table? You don't get to yell at her. I'm going to yell at her because I'm going home and I don't care if she's mad at me. (laughs) It doesn't affect me at all. (laughs) Anyway, back to what I was saying. The... You know, that's that's the topic of, you know, all of these, a lot of podcasts that you watch or TV shows or talks or whatever. They always talk about, you know, the depression, the PTSD, the PTS, the this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Nobody ever really talks about the growth phase afterwards and that you can go through it. It's not a life sentence. It's you know, like, there's a there's a meme out there and it talks about mistakes mm-hmm. so the teacher's right on the board one times nine is nine two times nine is 18 three times nine is 24 and then she goes to the rest of them mm-hmm. and all they point out is the mistakes mm-hmm. they don't focus on that she got eight out the of the rest of eight them, eight right? nine correct <laughs> yeah they right don't even notice. the one that was wrong that's yeah. kind of what we do as a, as a society really right and that's what we do is things right but you do one thing wrong and you're a piece of shit mm-hmm. yeah well, you know, take it back to the, the phrase that has been brought up multiple times. You bat 300 in baseball, mm-hmm. you're in the Hall of Fame. Yep. That's three out of ten. How is that acceptable? And a, the pitcher won't ever be there. Yeah. So, I mean, but we're hard on ourselves for the patience that we lose or oh, the, absolutely. all of that stuff. What could I have done better? Yeah. We, don't, we, we never focus on the, the good calls that we ran where we did get the save yeah. or... Mm-hmm. Or what did I do different here to make it work? It's where did I fuck up at? Yeah. Then I think that that's common across all. It is. You know, we all do it. Yeah. And it's trying to you know look at the positive. Yeah. Well, and you, that's and why it, it's hard to change that that train of thought. Oh yeah. To celebrate your victories. Yeah. That's a novel idea. Why well, is that a novel idea? So because you know usually when you start celebrating your victories, what do people say? You're oh. bragging, you're boasting, mm-hmm. right? You're beating your chest. You're, you're that yeah. guy. Yeah, you know, right. So that's why we don't do that. But I think also that we have to kind of in our careers, like it sounds dramatic, but for the most part, error in our careers usually results in death. And so there is that I don't want to say desire, but just inherent attitude that there always has to be improvement that we will be down on ourselves because like we demand better of ourselves at all times we're our own worst critics absolutely yeah i mean we, we're always striving to be better which that's what we want to do but sorry my hip is killing me yeah but and then you know you're going to make mistakes when you practice medicine yeah or you know you're putting out a fire because not every fire is the same. Not every car wreck is the same, and so on and so on. And you're going to learn from those mistakes, but they stick with you longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you forget about the, you know, great save you made. I can tell you about 100 bad calls, maybe about two, three good ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can tell you about any mistake I've made in the last 17 and a half years. Yeah. That ain't hard. Like being yeah. friends with Jeremy. mistake. <laughs> <laughs> It was just happenstance. So, that's he's, on he's, you because yeah. you've chosen to do it yeah. for I never said I made good years. decisions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but so I, it is true. And so a part of that, right, is and because I get it, like I'm not going to talk about or think about, you don't hear me talk about 
you know, whatever successful cases or, you know, individuals that are doing great and they go on, right? It's like, I'm fretting and worrying about the ones who haven't or the mm-hmm. ones I have lost or, you know, and so across the board, so whether it's personally or professionally, um, and part of that is that our brains are primed to remember the negative because it's a survival tactic, right? Like I'm going to remember the food that made me sick or the experience that was life-threatening so that I learned from it. 100% but I'm, agree. Yeah. And so part of it is that just kind of innate priming, but then also like it is like there is a performance part of it and pressure and expectation um, and the, you know, the suffering and silence and keeping quiet and shame and all of that stuff. So it's a complex piece, but, you know, I think people need to talk about it. Cause again, for like clinicians, there's a ton of shame about if, you know, if you have a client who's not doing well, or you feel like you messed up or you lose a client to suicide, people, how many people do you out? You don't hear people talking about that, right? Cause there's a lot of shame in that and loss that unfortunately. So even in that realm, like there's stuff that needs to be where we need to remove a stigma and have safe space to be able to to talk about stuff and talk about being human and talk about like that we can't, you know, you can't prevent what you can't predict and we can't predict everything. And that's a hard piece for people to accept, especially people who are fixers or in the realms of healing. And well, yeah. And I think that your profession is probably in the realm of being a fixer. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Absolutely. I mean, you you guys provide a, a framework for someone to fix themselves. Right. Is that fair to say? Kind of. Or to heal. Right. Because yeah, everybody would heal. say, like, you're not supposed to fix someone. But obviously there is pre- there's an immense amount of pressure right. to. So with. To correct, to heal, to. With that guide. being said, you know, with the way that the world is right now and this focus on, you know, and we do it, the focus on, you know, mental health for first responders and all of this. And, you know, therapists, especially with how COVID is and. All of that stuff, everything that's going on in the world right now, mm-hmm. everybody's jacked up. You guys are inundated with, you know, clients and hard cases and all of that stuff. What has been the toll that it has taken on your profession? 